This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Most of us, if any given day, all of a sudden we had 10 times the clients, we wouldn't have the infrastructure to support that. We wouldn't have the systems and processes to deliver the level of client experience or the service that we were looking to provide. Most of us would get extremely overwhelmed. Today on Bridging the Gap, I am joined by Libby Grywee. Libby opened the conversation about her aspirations of becoming a rocket scientist and how her life took a turn for the better when she entered the financial industry. And and you did hear me correctly. Libby opened her career and aspirations of being a rocket scientist. Yes, we have now made it. We had a rocket scientist on our podcast. So, With Libby, we go back to the basics about the importance of understanding the foundation of your processes within your firm. And Libby dives into the six layers she refers to as the systems to scale framework. Libby and I also dive into how to overcome feeling robotic within your systems and processes, something that we all feel at times when we put in processes. And we also talk about the meaning behind a rapid fire power hour and the secret to being more productive. Now, come on. Who doesn't want to be more productive and who isn't struggling with time management? We can all learn something from this conversation that we have today with Libby. So without further ado, let's turn it over to my conversation with Libby Grywe. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Libby Grywe, all the way from Cincy. Look at that. How are you? (laughs) Welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. Good, good. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I think this is going to be a great conversation. It touches on a lot of things that I'm really interested in, systems and marketing to the right clients and processes. And then we're going to get into some productivity hacks, which like I was saying before we start recording, I'm always trying to find that silver bullet. Is there just can you give us a tease into what we're going to be talking about? Is there a silver bullet for me to be more productive? Yes, but I think you're going to have to find your own silver bullet and make it work for you. So unfortunately, you're going to have to find the right model gun, the right model bullet, probably have to do some weights, make sure there's the right scratches in the sides to get exactly what you need, but it might be similar to what I use. Oh, gosh, I thought it was going to be easier than that. All right, (laughs) but you're going to tell us how to find all of those, which is what we need, and then I can make the decision, then I can own it, which is what we need. I love that. The firm you're at is the Efficient Advisor. I mean, what an amazing name, right? What an amazing name because all advisors need to be more efficient. So I love that. But before we get into any of this cool stuff that we're going to talk about that you're so knowledgeable about that I'm appreciative of you sharing with us here on Bridging the Gap, I always like to know your journey. What got you to where you are today? And before I let anybody get to telling about their journey, I always have to ask the question, the 13-year-old Libby Grywee is this what you wanted to do is own a firm called The Efficient Advisor? And if not, if not, then what did the 13-year-old Libby Grywe want to do? I'm pretty sure if I rolled back to 13, the goal would probably have been to ride horses professionally. I think that was probably where I was at in that space. Or I do remember I've always wanted to own businesses ever since I was a little girl. I used to ask for fax machines and copiers from Santa, like always have wanted a business. So I do remember also wanting to own a spa at 13, thinking like the benefit would be is that I got to like test out stuff all the time. (laughs) I love it. There's still time, right? (laughs) The the idea of the, uh, there is still time. There's plenty of time. And the idea of owning your own business and like wanting fax machines, 
I was the same way. My dad was fortunate to have started a business. And I would always go to the, the, the supply room because I would always want the supplies. And I thought it was so cool to have like a pad of paper. I thought that made me feel so professional, like I was owning a, owning a business. And uh, I can relate to that. The fax machine also sending faxes. <laughs> but besides the point. All right. So you went from wanting to own a business to now owning a business, wanting to ride horses professionally, owning a spa. You don't own a spa that I know of yet. We no, but about I that should. So far. I, I, like, I still like should. to go to them frequently. <laughs> Okay, you might as well. I mean, if you spend a lot of money there, you might as well own it. So you're investing in yourself. But how did you go from that 13 year old self to where you are today? What was that journey that got you here? Yeah, kind of an interesting experience. So my parents divorced when I was young. So my mom was really adamant about raising a daughter who was just really understood and really involved in the financial side of the world. Because I know when when my parents split, she felt very much like, oh, that's the one thing like I really don't understand. And she's having to learn it all from scratch while being you know, in that emotional state, raising two children, going back into the workforce. And so she used to march me downtown when she would go to see her broker. And I just grew up in that space and that idea that while I was at school, my money was making money for me. So I was like a good little German Lutheran who saved everything that she made. I used to deliver Avon books for the Avon lady. Remember those people? And I'd stick them in mailboxes. I don't, I think that's illegal, but that's what I did. And I got paid and I would save all of my money and I would invest it. And I just kind of assumed that that was normal for all 10 year olds. And it wasn't until I got into college, I actually went to school originally for engineering physics. So I am very, I have an analytical side to me, but I was way too extroverted to be a physicist. We'll come back to that. But I was in school for engineering physics and I realized, you know, A, I didn't want to be a physicist anymore. And B, I was just fascinated by this idea that nobody really understood budgeting. I had these roommates who babysat for these really wealthy families in, in an area nearby our college. And they'd make t- like a $10,000 in the summer, which when I was back in college, that was a lot of money. And they'd come back at the end of the summer and it'd be gone. And I was like, what? And so I found, I just loved helping other people figure that money game out and like learn how to invest and how to budget and how to save. And that was just kind of like a side activity for me while I was still in my studies. And eventually I really felt like God put it on my heart. That that was something I was supposed to do professionally. I I love that. I mean, I think that, um, I want to dive into engineering physics physics as well. Uh, I don't even know. I I just want to know what what you do with that. So we're going to come back to that yeah. in one second. Yeah. Um, but the feeling that it was normal to invest, I can relate to that as well because you know, my, my dad started a wealth management firm and I grew up just watching CNBC and I was like, everybody watches CNBC. Like this is a court. Like I always tell people joking, like that was like my cartoons. <laughs> and so I can, uh, I can relate to that. But, but before we go on engineering physics, what, what do you do with an engineering physics degree? Yeah. Well, so literally it was the objective was to be, and I always say this because I I laugh when, whenever I'm working with like advisors or teaching people, I go, this isn't rocket science. And I should know because literally that's what I was going to be was a rocket scientist. So (laughs) So that's what I originally wanted to do. I wanted to do that. Or I think the other dream was to design roller coasters. And so using, using engineering and physics to bring people fun, sort of like the Imagineer idea for Disney. So I love that. Uh, I know. I'm really ra- – you'll find, Matt, I'm extremely random, and the dots do not connect over here. So just – They up. do. It, they do. It's just a little <laughs> bit – I'm drawing out the dots on my paper here, and I had to turn it sideways and get a few different papers, but they're connecting. So you went from helping 
helping individuals, like thinking about mm-hmm. wanting to help individuals better use their money to now you're helping financial advisors. So how do we make that leap? Because I think that that is such a bigger impact because then they, you help one advisor, they can help 100 individuals. But I'm curious what your thought process was to make that jump. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to take you back to 2008 when I found out I was pregnant. This was, this was great news, but this was also super scary news, right? So I'd started my business in 2004 with a broker dealer. And for the previous four years, I had been working around the clock like a like a crazy person, right? You know, building my business, nights, weekends, whenever you wanted to meet, I was there, I was your girl. And it wasn't until I got pregnant that I was like, ooh, wait a minute. I am not going to be able to work like this and have a baby and be the mom that I wanted to be. So I immediately kind of got to work saying, okay, we can't work 70, 80 hours a week. What is what is what do I ultimately want my my life to look like? So it was really kind of prioritizing the children and being the you know, it was funny, even though I went into engineering physics, I'd always thought I'd be an at-home mom. And I realized now I was not cut out for that. I love being a mom, but that was probably not my uh, my thing. So I was able to really have the best of both worlds. I really made it a, a very strong objective to get down to three days a week and still run my practice. And I did not, uh, you know, I had kind of gotten used to the income that I was making and I really didn't want to give that up, to be totally honest. And of course, having kids is very expensive. So I really figured out a way to do both. And what happened was, is I really just, sort of started creating systems and processes for myself. And then my broker dealer started kind of taking me around and ta- having me speak at different areas because advisors were going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you're doing what now? And how are you doing that? Can you tell me more? Can you share? And I found that I loved helping people. And I was a big, you know, I was a big believer. I used to go to conferences all the time and people would get up on stage and they'd give these amazing ideas. And I'd get back to my office and go, okay, but like how? I love that idea, but like, how? And why do I have to build it from scratch? Can't you just give me the thing? So I realized that was my thing. I wanted to give people the thing who didn't think like I did when it came to systems and processes and really show them that. So when I started in 2004, I always joked that I was among the sea of FBFs, the fat, bald, and 50s. Like there were not a lot of young women doing this. And maybe five, six years into my career, they're all of a sudden, we started seeing more younger women who were coming into it and starting to you know, build their families. And so my company then actually approached me and had me start a maternity program because we didn't have paid maternity leave. So how do you run a business while you're taking you know, a couple of months off? And it really just kind of turned into a side passion that I didn't formalize until 2016 when we started The Efficient Advisor. And then we started hosting live work. We started off as a video show. Then we started hosting live workshops where advisors from all over the country would come in and we, my team and I would teach them our systems and processes in a two-day window and just deluge them with information. And I knew that I wanted to do something that was just as effective, but had more accountability and maybe a little bit longer time frame, slower pace. And I eventually sold my planning practice. I loved the, the coaching so much that I sold my planning practice when I was 37 back in 2019 and took a two-year sabbatical. We moved to Hawaii. We did a whole bunch of other crazy stuff during the pandemic. And then it was time for me to come back and kind of resurrect the efficient advisor. And I really kind of just felt that calling on my heart to get back out there. And again, like you were saying, I always felt like I could help the 285 households that I worked with when I was actually advising, but I could have a much bigger impact in the community if I could help more advisors avoid burning out and find more happiness and joy in their careers. 
Un- unbelievable. I-, I-, I love that story. And FBFs, I mean, come on, that is incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. You know, I, I think that there is a-, a-, a passion in the industry of individuals that-, that do it really well, that if you're able to share that, you-, you-, you are seen as something to put on a pedestal because we have been an industry where everybody tries to hold what they're doing. Like if they had a good process, they keep it to themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you mm-hmm. go out and you can expand it, your actually impact is greater and there's still opportunity for you. Like that's what I think people don't understand and that you your story shares is that like you can blossom the impact to make it even greater because you're not going to be able to serve a million households. But if you right. can help a hundred advisors, you now are making a hundred households or a million households, roughly, whatever the numbers come out to be, a lot better. I think that that's such a powerful way and a differentiated way of thinking in the industry. Yeah. I always joke, my family always tells me that I was born without two genes. I was born without the gene that allows me to get embarrassed. Like I just, for some reason, I just, I don't get embarrassed. I do a lot of really dumb stuff and I embrace it and I love it. And I was also born without the scarcity gene. For some reason, I just, I haven't experienced that because I've just experienced abundance. And the more I gave, the more I got. And it just, you know, my business continued to grow even when I was giving all of my stuff away. So I'm right there with you. I love that. And I, I want to turn now to, to that point, right? That's the utopia of like, gosh, let's just go help these advisors. Let's go make them better. But then there's the reality of it. Advisors are tough to work with. Advisors <laughs> are, I mean, come on, let's just be straight. I was, I am an advisor, right? I know how it is. And it's, yeah. they don't like to change. Why rock the boat? And we're in an industry where the markets trend to go higher. Why do I need to be more efficient? Why do I need to do all these things? Why do I need to make changes? Why do I need to do processes? It's worked for me in the past and I've done it this way and it's worked. Why do I need to change? How have you overcome that with advisors? Or have you just said, hey, to those advisors, I say I'm not good enough for you and I go into everybody else and there's plenty of people that want to grow and, and evolve. But you know, I think every advisor has a little bit of that in them. So I'm curious how you overcome that with your clients. Yeah, you know, whenever I look at advisors, I always think we're all a little crazy. It's just figuring out which type of crazy that advisor is, right? (laughs) So I tend to do really well with the advisors who are crazy enough to believe that they can build a business that they love, but also build a life that they love. So I'm a big believer in just sharing your message and who you are and knowing that the right people will find you. So people, the the right people for me are the people that I tend to work with or the advisors that tend to listen to to the podcast are really advisors who are in that space where they've built their business. So they know they're going to make it right. Like they can pay the mortgage, they can feed the kids. And they're in that discomfort where they've built this business. And now it's kind of becoming the vein of their existence, right? Like we built it and I'm overwhelmed Um, There's too many things to do. I used to have time for this, this, and this. And now I feel like I'm just barely throwing frozen chicken nuggets on the table every single night for dinner. Shout out to the Costco bet size bag of chicken nuggets. They got me through many years, but you know, it's, it's, everyone kind of hits that point where they realize I have this, this monstrosity that I've built and it's really great, but I'm not running a business. I'm running a me. So, you know, I would always tell myself like right now, I just have a Libby. If I removed Libby from this, there wouldn't be much left. And so getting over the hump for people, I think is really just, just sharing your message and kind of what your sweet spot is. I know there's advisor coaches out there who are all about 10xing the 10x to the 10x multiplier of the 10x with a cosine of 10x, where for me, I'm more like, hey, before we can 2x your business, let's build infrastructure that allows you to actually do that effectively. 
And then once we 2X your business, let's 2X it again and build the right infrastructure and support systems to do that and to do it well. Because most of us, if any given day, all of a sudden we had 10 times the clients, we wouldn't have the infrastructure to support that. We wouldn't have the systems and processes to deliver the level of client experience or the service that we were looking to provide. Most of us would get extremely overwhelmed. So my sweet spot is really helping advisors who are in that state of overwhelm, get their arms around their business, kind of get their business back into control and to start building some of those things. You know, I know at least for me, I spent those first years just like running like a crazy person. And all of a sudden it was like, Ooh, I don't really have a good system for that. Or it's all up in my head and I don't really have it down on paper. So how am I going to train and delegate people effectively? Or it's, I'm so busy handling the tasks that are right in front of my nose. I don't really have a lot of time to work on my business. And when we neglect working on the business is when we start to slip into that state of overwhelm because we don't take the time to create the stuff that's going to take, you know, save us time. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we always fall back into that trap of, gosh, I just know how to do this. I'll do it really quickly. If I, I mean, I don't have the time to like figure out the process, document the process because I just know how to do it. So I'll just do it really quickly. And then next time mm-hmm. I'll do it, right? It's like that same mentality, just a human mentality. Once I do this, then I'll be happy. And it's like six years no, later. That's not that, true. That, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next year, you know what? I'll start this at the New Year's. It'll be my New Year's resolution. I'll start it then. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's the same thing <laughs> that we go through, right? So I, I think about this, right? And and that's the, the rut we fall into. But like, let's go back to square one. What is needed to create the foundation to even start thinking about 2X? Like, where is it that we need to start? with our processes, whether it's a process that we need or the tech tech stack that we need or an infrastructure, like where do we start this? So for me, I kind of scale it back and there's really, in my opinion, or at least of what I've kind of identified, there's sort of six layers of building your business and I call it the systems to scale framework. So the first one for me is really kind of defining where you're at. So what's your sweet spot? What's the type of planning you love? Who's that ideal client avatar? What's your brand pillars? What's your why? Why are you in this? Who are the right people for you? What's the type of planning that you you know you kick butt at and that you're super good at and you feel like a million dollars when you do and connecting all of those dots first. So sort of that defining what you're doing, who you are, who you are as brand. Then the next step for me is really creating. So that's defining your high level planning process, distilling your that process into a documented SOP. And I know this all sounds like so much fun and it's not, this is the eye roll work. This is the work everybody hates. When we get to this in our group program, everyone's like, Oh, but yet it's the thing when it's done, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, I feel like $5 million that I finally got that off of my plate. And that's defining your client experience. What do you want your experience to look like? Okay. What's the process that supports that experience to happen consistently Let's document that. Let's SOP that. Let's train that, you know, train all of our team on that and really establishing what is that client service model? What are we doing for each level of client? What are they getting? How are they getting it? When are they receiving it? Let's map that out. Then the third level for me is attract. So, okay, we have, we've defined what we're doing. We know what it is that we're doing and how we're going to go to market with it. Now, how do we actually price our package? How do we talk about our offers? We talked about our why story. This is our how story. Um, How do we appeal to and differentiate ourselves from other advisors to our ideal market? So things like social media, yep, video, you know, getting started in all the attraction pieces. Then it's systematizing. So looking at 
all of the different time management systems that are available to you in your practice, creating those SOPs, those templates, those playbooks, really defining what your process needs to look like and building all of the templates that actually support that. So template, template, template on top of your template for more templates. And then it's looking at each of those pieces of your process and figuring out what are the ones that you can scale what, and what are the easy, what's the low hanging fruit, right? What can I create a template for and what can I teach to somebody else? And okay, what can I template, but maybe not teach and it's something I still have to do. And then what is going to be my organizational chart plan to get me out of some of those roles? So I'm really only doing the things that are super duper in my sweet spot. So scaling is sort of that fifth step. And then the sixth step is leading. So how do I actually go from an advisor to stepping into that CEO role of my business and really understanding how to build a practice that attracts talent to work with you? And how do I delegate effectively? What KPI, like actually doing the tracking. And this is something I think a lot of advisors, we, we tend to do all of these things and we don't actually know like, well, how did we do with that? Like, well, how do we measure those results? How do we know if our, our team is performing successfully? And then really you know, developing those leadership skills so that you can actually create more leaders within your team. I think that this is incredible. And you say that like we don't, as an industry, we don't, we don't measure it. We just go and do it. It's like the old gut react. We're just like really gut. We're like, yeah, sure well, I feel like it's doing well. I feel like yep. it's doing bad. I'm pretty sure so that, that marketing strategy worked. I think it did. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have those late night, you know, teams messages or emails or text messages to your, the person that you said was going to do it. It's like, how are we really doing? And like, why is this failing? I had, I, I had a great gut reaction, but this one failed. I want to touch on a few of these layers. I I love the six-layer approach. I want to talk on first on the attract side, right? Mm -hmm. The attract Mm -hmm. side is, I think, something that's really a challenge for advisors because I talk to many advisors and and they always come back with like, I say, what's your biggest challenge? Just like wide open. I mean, everybody can guess it. It's growth, right? And I think that that Mm -hmm. falls into the attract side, right? Having the right messaging, the how story, the pricing, the channel strategy that you're going to use. And we've talked a lot about niches and and having a niche that you're focused on. How Mm -hmm. do you, have you seen advisors work well on attracting? What has worked well to attract clients and what hasn't? When when are those experiences that you get to that step and you're like, I thought I trained you better than that, but it's not working. (laughs) Well, my big thing is, so the thing that we were really known for is that we were a 100% referral only practice. So by the end of my career, so I ran my business for about 17 years. And at the very end, the last maybe three or four years, our marketing budget was literally $0. And so I had to kind of reverse engineer that a little bit and say, okay, well, what did we do to get there exactly? Like what, what were the different things that we, that we created, that we built, like that we talked about. And it's really having, it's kind of like thinking about your business. And I, and I almost like hate to say this because we're going to talk about my book recommendation at the end, but it's really thinking about your service as a, as a product and really productizing what you're doing that makes it easier to explain and easier for people to buy and easier to differentiate yourself from other advisors. So a lot of what we, of what we do is so customized that it makes it almost hard to explain. So especially in those earlier stages of your career, you know, like you're four, five, six, seven, anybody comes in, you're kind of like, oh, well, we can, we do this and we kind of do this. And it was a fascinating story. I had a friend tell me, she's like, okay, I was talking with this advisor the other day and she told me about this amazing strategy that she's using. She's doing this like really awesome financial planning process. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well, tell me all about it. She's well, it's crazy. She gets together. The first step is to get together with clients and to learn all about them and what their needs are. 
and to find some goals. And then the second step is to gather their data. And the third step is to input all of that data into software and to analyze it. And then they're going to show it to the client and make recommendations. And then the last step is to manage that for them for the rest of their lives. And I'm thinking, what? Well, that sounds like what everybody does. And she was, I know the brilliant part is, is all she did was started marketing it. She didn't do anything different than she was doing the year before. And what we realized is most people just assume that clients know what we do and how we do it and what the value in each and every step of that is and what that analysis will bring them and why those recommendations are going to be so amazing that we forget to like really say like we follow this five step and just, just this advisor putting out that she has a five-step planning process change the course of her business. So when I say it's not rocket science, and then I say like, look, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. I'm being dead serious. It's not rocket science. So it's really streamlining and really understanding well, what is your process and getting it documented and thinking of it like a product, right? So when General Mills goes to sell Cheerios, they know exactly how big the box is, how much it costs to print that box, what bag goes inside of it, how much it costs to make that bag, you know, how many Cheerios are we putting? What's the weight of this thing? What's the cost structure? How long is it going to take for us to manufacture all of this, put it in a box and ship it off to a grocery store? And we know what kind of profit margin they're going to make. So we as advisors tend to not think of our, our service as like a product because that makes it feel, I don't know, maybe not customized or maybe makes it feel impersonal. But if we know exactly what we do, how long it takes for us to prepare it, who in our team needs to do what, what exactly the client's going to get from a deliverable standpoint, from an experience standpoint, it makes it so much easier to say, oh, this is our box of Cheerios and here's why it's better than the store brand or here's why it's better than this other circular cereal product on the shelf right next to us. You know, I, I think that there's something so big with that because as you're talking about like the the five-step financial plan, I think about like the, you know, we, we utilize traction and EOS within our business and mm-hmm. it's like the proven process. And we talk about it all the time. But nobody's ever talked about sharing that with the client until recently. And then we share it with the clients like, oh, I get it. Cool. Like, they're coming <laughs> into this thing. We know exactly what we're doing, but they have no clue. They have no mm-hmm. clue. It's, the, I, it's kind of like the curse of knowledge where because we know so much, we're actually you know, hurting ourselves on it. And, and I think it's so interesting on that because then it also reminds me of you know, within our technology business, we have always done a mutual action plan where as we're selling the technology, we tell people, this is step one, what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this today, this step two, and you get to choose if you want to move to the next step. And then you get to choose on the next step, providing ownership to them. But that clarity, like if you just assume that they know that the demo comes after this next conversation, like they're never going to know that. Like they want to know so that they have clarity. And I think it's such like a key takeaway of, of attracting. I, I think that that mentality of sharing it is so key. Now, I want to move to the next side of it, right? I want to move to the scale side where like the templates and the training and the, mm-hmm. the processizing. I've gotten pushback at times from advisors that, you know, when you start templating it out, they're like, well, you know, like sometimes we want to have this and sometimes we want to have that and we need to personalize it. It feels robotic. Like, why would we template it? How do we help to, because it is still a personalized business and we don't want to create it so structured necessarily because we're, we're dealing with people's money, how do we overcome that to help build the processes that are tan- fungible, I guess, is the word. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's yeah. the word. I don't know. I'm from the South, yeah. so just go with me. Great. Um, that, that allow for us to kind of to, to kind of make them a little, mold them to how we need to in specific situations, but still create that, that standardization that creates efficiency that you need. For sure. So my rule of thumb is like, 
80% of it should be standardized. That leaves 20% wiggle room for complete customization. So same idea if you go into like a five guys, they're going to make everybody's burger the same way, but they're going to be able to give you bacon and onions and they're going to be able to give me mustard and tomatoes, right? Um, They can still customize it, but it's the exact same baseline process with just a little bit of zhuzh, right, at the end. So for example, let's think about a recommendations template. So we specialize in clients who are about five to 10 years out from retirement, mostly retiring from Procter Gamble and General Electric and some of their big, big companies based in Cincinnati and usually people with executive compensation plans. So we would have this giant template of recommendations. So let's say the one section was tax. One section was uh, distribution strategy. One section was estate planning. One section was proactive RMD strategy, whatever. And in that, I would have every recommendation I've ever written for a client. And we, you know, it really, if you look at your recommendations, there's maybe only like five or six different income strategies you're going to recommend. So you're basically using the same things over and over. You might be using number one, three, and six for this client and number one, three, and you know, four for this client. But basically what I had was like a 75 page recommendations template that I could go through and you could literally, if you wanted to print it off and circle the ones that apply and have somebody else plot that into a template where this language is standardized, but then they would just go in and change the numbers. So for example, like life insurance, I just taught my director of operations. Here's how I calculate life insurance. And it was the same language, depending on the type of policy we were talking about, she would just go in and change the numbers based on the client's needs. So it's most of the way there. And then you just have to you know, add the little like zhuzhing and bells and whistles that really make it customized to that client. I think that that's incredible. Now I'm, I'm already thinking because I got, we have three different RA firms here in Atlanta and I'm thinking about like how we can implement some of this to help. And we have one firm that has a lot of it and another firm that may not, but you just said a 75%, 75 page template of all these different responses, right? Mm -hmm. How, how do you go about organizing it right now? I start thinking about organizing all this information, right? You know, I got this thousand page SOP, you know, I've written a few of those before. They're, they're not fun to write, but they're impactful once written, like you mentioned. And mm-hmm. then you got all these templates, you got these processes. Where do you store all this to keep it easily accessible and also the ability to Yay. change it, right? Yeah. So in our like our group coaching program or whenever we create with an advisor their their planning process, everything, every single thing that's happening for a client before, during, after, and in between meetings is in this Excel spreadsheet, essentially. And we know when it's supposed to happen, what's supposed to happen, who's supposed to do it, how they're supposed to do it. And here's a hyperlink to the template that they're supposed to use. So for us, that's kind of the core organizational strategy. And then for the the master template, it's 75 pages, but our recommendations were only five. So we could go in and immediately say, this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply. And the tighter the niche that you work with, the lower number that's going to be in the first place, right? So if you're working with young families who are doing college planning and you're working with people who are doing estate planning and you're working with people in their forties who are, you know, jumping careers and trying to make buy their first lake house or whatever, you're going to have a lot of different stuff happening and it's really difficult to organize. So the more niched down you get, the tighter your recommendations become. And so we would just, every time we had a new client, we'd make, we'd copy over the 75 page template and then we just delete out what didn't apply And that would leave us down then with the skeleton of what could apply. And then as my director of operations sat in on those meetings, she'd delete the ones that didn't apply. Or when we'd start creating our recommendations, we would just go in and then change the numbers on the ones that did. So it sounds really big and hairy, but it actually wasn't. 
And I love that I asked the question of what technologies we use to organize things. And you spoke to the advisor's heart. You spoke to the advisor's heart. You said Excel. Right. Yep. Keep it simple. Unbelievable. Why do you need technology when you've got Excel? It does everything. It can I do mean, anything. And it can be like, okay, the, the step here is that you know, front office person goes into Wealthbox and turns on this workflow. So you can still integrate technology into the good old fashioned Excel spreadsheet. Uh, you speak into our hearts. You know your you know your niche. You know your niche and you 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 accept it. Well so for me, I, if it's got- if it's complicated, I'm not doing it over and over again. Like if it's hard or if it's complicated, I know myself well enough that I'm not gonna do it. So it has to be simple. At least that's how just- my brain works. It's not just you, it's everybody, right? We overcomplicate the simple. Me and my, my, one of my business partners is my brother and we always joke. I mean, it is, we overcomplicate the simple. And so one of us is always telling the other person, just let's find a way to simplify it. And we, we get to the end of it and we have this master plan and it's like, how do we even do this? And you just have mm-hmm. to simplify it. Um, yeah. So before I let you go, and before I get to my final two takeaway questions, I, I want to ask about this article. You wrote it, eight productivity hacks to get more done in less time. Eight yes. productivity hacks. And you said to me at the beginning of the podcast that you're going to tell me how to find the right, you know, the silver bullet. It may not be a silver bullet, but allow me to find my silver bullet. So talk to me about the eight productivity hacks to get more done in less time because, gosh, I'm looking for it. Yeah. So for me, it's really OK. I did a whole podcast on this called Designing Your Perfect Schedule. And it's it's more of an art, but you also have to include some science. Right. And it's really making sure I, I always tell advisors before you can scale your practice, you have to scale yourself. Like that's the, that's the, the cheapest and easiest thing that you can do before you hire anybody else. You need to make sure that every single minute that you're doing is maximized to the fullest. So for me, it's really figuring out what actually works for me. What I think really you need to distill down. Well, what is it that I need to be doing with my time? And then when is it appropriate for me to do it? How do I eliminate distractions? How do I reduce the amount of time that I'm spending doing things by creating these systems and temp, you know, and templates. And then how do I manage my energy and be aware of when I do things well? So for me, I knew like, I can't talk to humans before 10 AM. It's not a good idea. Even if I'm well caffeinated, it, I am not smart until 10 AM Eastern. So I apologize for anyone who has scheduled a coaching call with me prior to 10 AM. You, you did not get your money's worth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> The, I the don't re, schedule the them that early. The refund is in the mail. The <laughs> the is in the mail. You heard it here. It's mail. coming back. <laughs> but it's really about minimizing distractions and really getting a hold of yourself. And, and and we'd need like a whole nother hour to talk about this. But it's really figuring out like, okay, here's where I get stuck going down these rabbit holes. Like, so for me, it was email. So I knew that I should not be checking my own email. So I eventually delegated that away. But for advisors who don't have that you know luxury just yet, don't check it till noon. You know, that way you're not immediately deluged with everybody else's agendas and you feel like there's all these, you're running around with your hair on fire because, you know, this person needs this and everything feels urgent, even though it's actually not. Like my favorite thing in the financial planning world is that it's not like, you know, I'm not a surgeon. No one is going to die on the table if I don't call them back till 2.30. You know, we think everything is so urgent, like this form has to get out today or they're going to die and that beneficiary didn't get changed in time. It's not going to happen. Nobody's going to die. It's all going to be just fine. And little Billy's going to get his money. Don't worry about it. So for me, it was like, what are the, what are the distractions? Where am I wasting my time? Like even little things. So for me, having a model week or an ideal week, some people call it where it's pretty structured. What I found is, and it sounds funny because I bet people listening will be like, wow, she's like, 
really organized and super structured? And the answer is I'm not. I have ADD. I'm all over the place. I'm super messy. I um, would not describe myself as like the world's most organized person. So this was definitely like a learned skill for me. I'm very easily distracted. I, you know, so for me, it was the more structure I actually created in my business, the more freedom that I had. So in order to get down to a a 24 hour work week, I had to like really buckle down. And I knew if I was only doing that three days a week, I could handle it. Right. And then Monday, you know, Wednesdays and Fridays could be yoga pants and messy bun and, you know, doing all the other things that in life that distract me. So it was really kind of finding a a schedule that worked for me and then implementing strategies that actually forced me to get the things done when I said I was going to do them. So the two that I would really share with you are one I called the rapid fire power hour. So I know by the end of the week, I'm done. My brain, my creative brain is turned off. My deep work brain is turned off. And really all I should be doing that I can still be effective at is a thousand little tasks that I can just, oh yeah, pay that bill. Oh yeah. Send that response. Oh yeah. Put that in the calendar, you know, book the kids summer camp, whatever it is, like the little things that you can just knock out. So I would have in my calendar towards the end of the week. And I do now as well, the rapid fire power hour, like every little task, instead of just doing them here and doing them there and doing them here. And yeah, they only take one or two minutes, but I, you know, I, because I get distracted easily, I go and I take two minutes and then it turns into five. And all of a sudden I'm looking at your sister's wedding photos on Facebook and I don't even know what happened. So for me, it's like all other distractions have to be turned off. And I, and I, that way I can just knock those things out. The other thing I would recommend is iron butt time. So this was a, a strategy I learned from a man named David Crenshaw. Iron butt time is where you literally like sit in your chair when you know you have to do deep work and set a timer on your phone and say, I need to do this project until this timer goes off. And then nothing else is allowed to happen. And it was it was to the point where I would have my, my team, I'd say, I'm going into iron butt time. So literally like my butt is lead. It's not allowed to get out of this chair. And if I come out of the office, your job is to push me back in and quietly close the door and tell me to get back to work until my timer goes off. So I found then like the Pomodoro method was something else I mentioned in that article came out of that iron butt timer. I was like, okay, how long am I going to set this timer for? How long can I really do work? What happens in those, you know, I can't get into something else when I take a little mental break because then I'm going to, you know, it takes all that time to get readjusted and back into your work. So I have ultimately found the Pomodoro method, which is 25 minutes of hard work on then five minutes off of like purely just getting coffee, like not checking your email, not checking your phone. Um, and you can read all about that in the article. I don't want to, this will be a 400 hour podcast. If I went through all of the things that I had to do and learn to train myself to actually get done what I was supposed to do. I mean, we may have to bring you back on as a productivity and have that four hour long marathon podcast, which could be the longest <laughs> podcast and one of the best in the, in the history of podcasting. You know, I a few things I took away. I love the iron butt time. I love the rapid fire power hour. I think that that's so good because it's like, and I've always talked to advisors about this just with regards to their processes. It's like, yeah, I know you can send that email really quickly and it and it's good, but is it the best utilization of your time? Yes, it takes you 30 seconds, but is that the best 30 seconds? And like, is it right to do it right then or you have bigger things and they just lose focus because it happens to all of us. And and you also mentioned something about, you know, I love the idea of before you scale your practice, you have to scale yourself. The email thing. I just want to touch on this and then we're going to wrap up because we got yeah, we got to yeah. get going here. But the email <laughs> thing is something that is so interesting to me because, you know, it's something I've been working on too. And I find myself and I finally got over to where I like turn my phone on do not disturb and everything of that nature, but you when you when you like are away from email and it's like 10 a.m. And you're used to checking your email all the time. You're like your heartbeat, your anxiety, like 
skyrockets. You're like, oh my gosh, someone's got, someone needs me. Like I'm really important. And then you go check your email. You're like, nope, 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 nope. Oh my God. The world turned without me. Can you believe it? (laughs) The world made it to 10. (laughs) This world is moving without me. And nobody, and then you like, you respond back to someone be like, I'm so sorry. It took me so long. They're like, no, that was so quick. You're like, no, that was five hours. And they're like, no, that was so quick. Like, I didn't care. I haven't been thinking about you that long. Like, you're thinking about yourself, but I'm not thinking about you. Right. So I, I, I think that that's such a challenge. But my question is, is how did you, because I think there's a lot of people I've talked to that want to get out of using or getting in their email and having like their assistants or another team member. How did you go through that process? That's something I'm super interested in because I think that people are scared of that. But I think that people, a lot of people need it, especially as you grow in your, in your career. Yeah. So you're asking specifically about delegating it to somebody else? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do okay, you delegate cool. your email to someone else? How do you get your emails? Like, what do you, how do you know when to respond and what to respond? Like, how does this thing work? Yeah. I want to get rid of email, to be honest. The best thing we ever did is we switched the entire office over onto a team email. So our clients, we, and it's a slow process of training them over and, you know, putting it on your agenda and having a conversation with everybody. It was in the client's best interest to email our team email because that was being checked all day long. If they were going to email me in an eight hour workday, I might have seven client meetings. So you're not going to get a very quick response from me. And when you do, it's going to be rushed. And at the end of the day, when I don't have time to do the right research, or it's going to, you know, then it's going to flow over into the next day. So what we instead did is we had all of our incoming, like our, our client emails all came into a team email. And then we had our front office admin would then assign them to the appropriate people. So she could really go in and go, is this something Libby actually has to read, touch, do? And if so, then she'd send it over to me. The vast majority, 99% of them, I honestly, in my practice, other than talking to clients, I didn't know how to do very much. So I didn't get a whole lot of actual email, but more, you know, it was a lot of the stuff that we were managing was stuff coming in from our corporate office saying, oh, we need this transfer form. Oh, you, you know, we have a, a NIGO, good Lord, the NIGOs. And that's somebody else's job. So she was able to take those and decipher who goes to what. And it's a slow process. I mean, it's a learning process for somebody who maybe isn't involved in all of those details of the business to, you know, to learn them. But just like anything else, you're not going to believe it, but guess what? You can create a system. You can create a system of where everything's going to go and you can color code it and you could get down with your highlighters and your bad self. There's all kinds of things you can do in your email, but yeah, it was really creating a team email and having everything funnel into one place and then having someone who knows what they're doing, then distilling those down into what's urgent, what's, maybe could be perceived as potentially urgent, but really isn't. And then what are the things that are not urgent at all? And then how do we direct those to the appropriate people to handle them timely? Gosh, I love it. I love that idea of having multiple emails and sending some emails to one inbox and then having another inbox. I think that that's great. Well, so we are going to have to have you all back on and we're going to have to talk about, I want to go deep into what you learned through the productivity hacks because I think that everybody needs it and it probably leads to building systems, but I'm going to let you get back to changing the lives of other advisors as well. But before I do, one of the main reasons we have these is that everybody loves to learn from bright minds like yourself, rocket scientists, basically. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> that was a know. long time ago. <laughs> and, but, but, and so we learn in these conversations. And I also love to learn by reading books from people that are really smart and smarter than me. And so mm-hmm. I always like to ask on this podcast of all my guests, what is one book that's out there that you think everybody should read? Okay. I have an obscure 
business book recommendation. So I love giving this one when I'm asked this question, because I feel like everybody's like, oh, I've read Rocket Fuel. Oh, I've read, you know, Traction. Oh, I've read Atomic Habits. Like those are all the ones everybody knows. There is this funny little book called Built to Sell, even if you don't plan on selling your business, but Built to Sell by John Warlow. And it's a funny little business book because it's written like a novel. Have you ever read this? Uh Uh-uh. Oh my gosh. It's written like a novel and you can blow through it in like two or three hours. But what John Warlow does is he takes this idea of turning a service-based business into a product and he puts it into story format. So it reads like a fiction story, but it's a business story. And, you know, and when you're reading it again, you're like, this isn't rocket science. This isn't earth shattering, but it's one of those books that every single advisor that I've recommend to read it has come back to me and been like, freaking loved that book. That book changed the way I think about my business. It changed the way I think about my process. It changed the way I thought about marketing my process, everything about it, systematizing it, all of the things that we talked about today. And it, it, it's literally like a two or three hour read. It's an amazing little book. That's awesome. I love it. I'm going to have to get it. But you don't know how slow of a reader I am. So it may take me two or three days. But either way, that's still good for me. Last one is I got this always from Barron's conferences. I thought it was really cool what they did. They always ask their guests, what's one piece of actionable advice you think listeners should take away from this conversation we've had today? If I could, if I could just take everybody into a room and like share the quote unquote secret sauce with them, it would be that you need to build your business around the type of planning that you love and what makes you happy and brings you joy, because that's when you will do your best work. And what, what an awful place to be in running a business and you know, it's often advisors come to this as an encore career, right? And they tell me like, I left my other job because I worked too many hours and I was checking email on the weekends. And, and then they just come over here and now they own it and they're paying more in taxes and they're doing the exact same thing that they were doing that they hated in their corporate job, right? And so for me, it's really figuring out what it is that you love and what it is that you love doing that you'll just feel like you're serving people and that it fills your bucket back and then packaging that. So whatever the, you know, so not what, you know, we go to a conference and we think like, oh, oh, this is what I should be doing because I saw another advisor doing it, but doing things exactly your way. Cause there is somebody out there literally praying for the service that you provide that in the way that you provide it. And we often think of ourselves maybe like in a commodity type business where there's a five gazillion advisors. Well, everybody's out there trying to look like everybody else. So if you just try to look like you, you'll stand out and People will be flocking to you and raising their hand to say, yeah, that's the kind of advisor or that's the type of process that I'm looking for. Amazing. Amazing. Libby, we could talk for hours. I am super interested in, in everything you have to say, and I've learned a ton on this podcast, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for you joining us here and sharing your knowledge. And I can't wait to continue following everything you're doing, hopefully being able to stay in touch. But I know that the listeners will also want to stay in touch and follow all of your great work and even maybe connect with you. So how can they best connect with you on the social networks, on your website, wherever it may be? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I hang out on LinkedIn, just under Libby Grywe, and I'm sure you'll link that in the show notes. And then really the podcast, The Efficient Advisor. And with The Efficient Advisor, we have a Facebook group of about, I don't know, there's probably about 700 advisors in there from all over the world and all different types of businesses with lots of different demographics and ideas. And it's just a really cool kind of brain trust of people sharing ideas and giving input and bringing problem. It's, it's just a really kind of a fun thing to see advisors pouring into each other and being really open. The same idea that, you know, we kind of opened the, the show with today about just being willing to share your ideas 
and not feel like everything's like top secret. So it's a really cool group of people. And I love to hang out in there as well. Love it. Libby Grywe from Cincinnati. Thank you so much for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. And please, please keep doing all the great work you're doing because the industry needs you and we're appreciative of you. So thank you. Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 